Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, a guilty verdict in the case of the man who attacked Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's husband Paul after breaking into their San Francisco home last year. Our very own Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is here to update us on the conviction of David DePap and fill us in on the details of that trial which he's been in court for for the past couple weeks. We will also chat with Guy Marzarati about his exciting weekend plans. He's heading up to Sacramento for the State Democratic Convention. Thanks, Guy. Uh, but first, Joe, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thanks hey, for Joe. having me. Yeah. So Under the Wire made it back in time for this taping. And, um, you know, we should say this guilty verdict came out today very shortly after the prosecutors had rested their case. Explain what he's been convicted of exactly. Yeah, sure. So it's not as straightforward as you would expect as a attack with a hammer would be. Uh, these specific federal charges rely on Pelosi as a federal officer. It's attacking the family member of a federal officer, assault, I should say, and attempted kidnapping of a federal officer in retaliation for her duties. So that makes this a lot different than what folks might expect. And we saw DePap did take the stand in his own defense earlier in the week. I mean, did he talk about his intent? I mean, it was kind of surprising to some that that he actually, you know, was there to sort of help himself. He didn't really say anything that would seem to help him. Well, I, you know, it's it's an interesting choice because it really isn't common to see the accused up there on the witness stand, right? But again, it has to do with these very specific charges. What the defense really was trying to get at is. Why did he target Pelosi? What was his reason for going after Pelosi? In the defense's arguments, they essentially were trying to say, well, if it was not because of her federal duties, like because she took a vote that they didn't that he didn't like, or because he she took funding away from a program that he didn't like, if it wasn't related to that and it was something outside of that, then actually this federal statute, this very particular and unique federal statute, should not apply. So they got him up there, and he's telling way more details than we had heard before. He had an inflatable unicorn costume that he wanted to wear on video while breaking the speaker's kneecaps and then potentially wheeling her out into Congress. How he gets from her home to Congress, I can't tell you. But what I will tell you is that was part of his plan. And then to lure someone that the court called Target One, who is an academic in queer theory, uh, to Pelosi's home. That was the fascinating part. Pelosi wasn't even his main target. His main target was this academic who he accused quite erroneously, completely ridiculous, of being a pedophile. I'm still stuck on inflatable unicorn. Yeah. (laughs) They held it up in court. They held up. Oh, he had it. He had it in his They had it on his backpack, in his person. No, no, no. Not one. Two. Wow. You have to have a backup. And those... 
things aren't cheap. I know. I bought my kids them for Thanksgiving <laughs> oh, no. uh, or for Halloween, rather. So I, I do want to back up, though, Joe, because a lot of the things you're talking about sound pretty crazy, I think, to your average citizen. and But right. they do track, I think, when you think about it with some of the conspiracy theories we've heard, particularly QAnon, when you talk about, you know, targeting someone like Pelosi, part of the whole QAnon belief system is that Democrats are pedophiles and there's a lot of sort of obsession with, I think, the queer community and LGBT rights. So what I mean, can you just explain a little bit more about what the defense said, what he said about his own thinking? Because I think, you know, one thing I hope we can do is, I don't know, maybe take some lessons from all of this about the kind of moment we live in. And is there anything that that we heard that could push back against a lot of those conspiracies? So so DePap had a very... I would say, a, a sad and and hopeful and then sad again tale. He was a homeless man for a long while. Uh, but then when you know he started hatching his plan against Pelosi, he had found a home. He was, Someone had let him live in their garage. He didn't have a bathroom. He didn't have a shower. He didn't have a bed. He had a futon. We saw pictures of his futon that was slid up against the wall. He A, a neighbor let him shower at her house. But, you know, there wasn't other support for him. And here, here he was alone in this garage playing video games all day. And he described on the stand how he became radicalized. He would listen to right wing uh, YouTubers and podcasters spewing all of this hate for hours. He would listen to it all weekend from start to finish from when he woke up until he went to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that radicalized him. And to the things you're talking about, the pedophile, the ideas that Democrats are helping pedophiles or that uh, academics who study sex theory are pushing for molestation, all these crazy ideas. And that's where he descended. There are groups doing this work. I talked to some uh, folks uh, at a group called Peril, which studies extremists. And there are ways to help people and deprogram them. But they are not easy. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we call them crazy ideas. And, you know, Marisa, you alluded to sort of this moment we're in in our politics. I mean, just the other day, uh, Donald Trump was in New Hampshire. He called uh, Nancy Pelosi a crazed lunatic. And then he says, what the hell was going on with her husband? Let's not ask. I mean, this guy is... Yeah, he said is, similar things when I saw him speak in Anaheim last Yeah, night. so he's like fueling this stuff. And it, it, I have to say, it's not quite related to the trial, but it, it, it's beyond me how folks can think that is the kind of mindset you want in the White House. Well, honestly, it's very related to the trial because, and I'll tell you, because in on the witness stand, DePap talked about how he wanted Nancy Pelosi to admit the lies she had told about Trump with Russiagate. This is the accusation about pornographic tapes uh, with Trump in Russia. And he wanted her to confess to her lies about it. He had heard YouTube videos that said that she lied about it. The YouTube videos told him that Trump was innocent and the left wing media was making up lies about Trump. And that is what he went into tears. He was crying on the stand when he thought about the times when he was against Trump until he saw the light. Well, I'm curious how prosecutors responded to like this sort of novel legal defense that, yes, he did this horrific act, but it was not directly related to Pelosi's official duties. Um, what how did the you know federal prosecutors kind of counter that in the courtroom and just talk about the vibe too like during all of this what was the audience thinking what were the court officials 
you know, what were their faces looking like? Talking about vibe, the most shocking moment in this whole trial, I think, and we saw some pretty horrific stuff, was when the defense first gave their argument. So when the defense first gave their argument, they started out by straight up listing to Pap's crazy conspiracy theories with no qualifiers. The, def- the Jody Linker, the federal public defender for the Northern District, she starts by saying, Tom Hanks has raped uh, a young girl and... Uh, uh, such and such a person is a pedophile. And she started listing off these crazy things to the point where I think everyone in the room thought, wow, do you believe this? Are, mm. did, did Pap get you to say this? Is this what's happening here? And then she pivoted and says, well, these are the crazy things that Pap believes. But you think they're crazy. I think they're crazy. But these are uh, this case is not a who done it. It's a why done it. But the prosecutors, as you noted, as you're asking about, prosecutors didn't really address that at all. 80% of the case, they never poked a hole in it. They never really went into it. Instead, they hammered home. Oh, so sorry. Poor choice of words. <laughs> they um, they really pushed hard on the idea that he uh, planned this meticulously for weeks, that he planned it uh, through paying and purchasing for online services to find the addresses for his targets. And he had a long target list and that he meticulously purchased things that he knew would get him into the home and studied the home to get in. And that must have found purchase with the jury because they eventually came to the verdict they did. Yeah. And they deliberated, I think, about eight hours. And I don't know, you know, it was a fairly short trial. So I don't know if that seems like a lot of time or a little time. Um, it, w- it would have been shocking, though, wouldn't it? Given that all this was on tape, you know, the hammer attack and him lying in a pool of blood, even though the federal charges kind of, you know, they, as you say, they required intent, proving intent. But it must have been hard for the jurors, I would think, to separate out, you know, what he did versus why. I think this is a testament to how strong the defense's case was, how strong they presented their case, I should say. Because going into it, the experts I talked to said, this should be a really open and shut thing. This mm. should be really easy. And those are the ones where prosecutors sometimes fail, right? Because it seems so easy. Mm. Uh, the defense really came out with all guns blazing and... I, I got to tell you, just as a lay person sitting in the gallery, like the, the prosecutors didn't seem it, it didn't seem as immediately compelling. You had to think more about it. You had to think a lot more about it, really work through the logic of what they were saying. Whereas if you just went off of how you felt in that moment, the defense really was very convincing. What was Paul Pelosi's testimony like? He did take the stand. And I mean, I, I don't know if all of our listeners have watched that horrible video, but. He's been through quite a bit, and it sounds like he, I don't know, you you characterize oh, what, what it was like. So he came in, and I have to say, there was a kind of a hush over the courtroom because this we had been hearing all about the horrific things that happened to him. We had seen it from multiple angles. We had seen video that hadn't been released to the public of him laying in a pool of his own blood and his uh, what they call agonal breathing, which is like the death rattle when you're trying to get more oxygen to your brain to save your brain. And it was absolutely horrific and frightening. And then here he is, finally, uh, in person. And he he described fear. You know, DePap burst into the room, surprising him as he was asleep on the third floor of his home. Um, he described DePap repeatedly as like a bigger man. And DePap is quite tall, uh, especially uh, compared to Paul Pelosi. And how he had tried to escape. First, he tried to escape to the elevator, which is on the – there's an elevator door across from his their bedroom. And he couldn't make it to Pap kind of close, shut him off. And then he described how he hatched the plan to call 911 and kind of signaled to them surreptitiously that he was in trouble without angering to Pap. 
You know, he, and he's very lucky, but it's really extra, showed extraordinary composure on his part to be able to, the, the fact that he's alive. Oh know? my God, talk about composure. He was so composed and he was so diplomatic with DePap that DePap on the stand said, I, I had a good rapport with Paul Pelosi. I think we were getting along. Mm. And, and the interesting thing about DePap is he's the kind of person who, if you talk to him for five minutes about something completely innocuous, you would never know that he had an unfortunately twisted mind. And he did apologize, right, to, to Paul Pelosi. He did. He did. <laughs> he said, you know, uh, Paul Pelosi was never my intended target. He only got in my way of pursuing evil, is what he said. So um, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi was not in court. I know one of her daughters, Christine Pelosi, was there supporting her father. Every day. What has been the reaction from the Pelosi family and, and what was it like, you know, having them in court, do you think, for all the various players in this? Well, the Pelosi family really uh, focused on Paul. They, they, you know, they called him Pop in their statement and said that he had incredible composure both that night in order to get himself safe and on the stand, which, you know, is, is very true. You heard him on the stand talk about how he lost his hair and wasn't able to grow it back for nine months. You, you saw him on the stand while we looked at a photograph of his skull depressed in the front from the hammer blow. And, and you see all that and you're watching all that while you know Christine is just behind you in the back row and thinking about what their family must be thinking. It's quite a harrowing thing for all of them to go through. Yeah. Um, of course, this was a federal trial with federal charges. There are also pending charges from DA, San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. Any sense of where that's going to go now that we have a guilty verdict? Absolutely. Uh, DA Jenkins released a statement right away saying, hey, we're pursuing those charges. We've got a pretrial hearing on the 29th of this month where they're going to set a trial date. And he faces, again, up to uh, life in prison for these state charges as well. Hmm. Um, I guess I'm just curious before we let you go, Joe, like what's your takeaway from this in terms of, like I mentioned earlier, just the bigger politics here. This was clearly, you know, a horrific event for the Pelosi family, for the city of San Francisco. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have any any hope that we can we can have better a better sort of dialogue moving forward. Well, I mean, it's not lost on me that, you know, a big central part of the case was the radicalization of David DePap, the kind of conspiracy theories around Nancy Pelosi that led to this. And those have not stopped. She she continues to hear them every day. Yeah, well, not only her, I mean, you, you know, you wonder what impact, well, there's been a lot of convictions in the January 6th cases as well, same kind of radicalization happening. And you don't, you know, you, you would hope that it would send a signal to people like, hey, maybe this isn't the best, you know, route to go. But Well, and, you and know, they, as they talked yeah. about on the stand, uh, Judge uh, Jacqueline Scott Corley was talking a lot about how this statute that DePap was tried under, the one about federal duties specifically, this was used in the January 6th insurrection. Mm-hmm. This was used, the same uh, statute for the insurrectionists, and it may need some updating. There's a lot of debate about the intent of the statute, and it seemed there were some loopholes that may have been possible for the defense to drive through. I mean, we saw a day's worth of deliberation. All right. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, KQED politics reporter, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you both. Thanks, Joe. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, Guy Marzarati is going to join us to talk about all the other news this week. You might have heard there was a conference here in San Francisco. (laughs) You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer and Guy Marzarati, our trifecta of politics. Guy, welcome back. Hey there. Welcome to the other side of the glass. <laughs> Good to be here. So, um... It was a bit of a raucous week here in the Bay Area, y'all. Yo. <laughs> uh, we're taping this Thursday afternoon. Thursday morning, protesters fully shut down the Bay Bridge for hours. Uh, some of them allegedly threw their keys into the Bay to you Lots know, of prevent cars. their cars from moving. Um, we saw protests... Most days, uh, President Biden was down at this beautiful estate south of San Francisco meeting with Chinese President um, Xi Jinping. Uh, governor was here, vice president. Um, I don't know. Broad broad takeaways, guys? What do you think? Well, you know, I think uh, it's not quite over yet, but it seems from San Francisco's perspective, uh, they got a lot out of it. Uh, you know, it looked good on TV. Uh, the event, Even the protests. Even the protests. And the protests were... You know, they didn't get out of hand. This wasn't like the the uh, Democrats convention in Chicago, you know, in 1968. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, they got a chance to make their point. The police seemed to, you know. It did seem a little else. on the edge yesterday. It was on, on the Wednesday. edge. Yeah, yeah, it was on the edge. Was definitely. And I think, you know, in some ways, I mean, and people will talk about the summit with, you know, Biden and Xi, uh, Xi Jinping. But um, I think in some ways, you know, when you have events like this, what the, the long term takeaway is more the connections that are made between people, you mm-hmm. know, from different parts of the world, whether they're talking about climate change or trade or whatever immigration whatever it might be and i think those are that's really the value of conventions generally is those those connections you make i mean going into this i think given the stakes of the us china relationship it seemed like there's no way that biden's meeting with xi could be overshadowed by anything but it almost was i mean i think the takeaway for a lot of people living in the bay area who may not have been involved in apec might be the bay bridge shutdown oh, yeah. and the and the protests over gaza um, that were happening there. And even Biden's press conference yesterday, I think, you know, there was so much focus on on his description of Israeli uh, Israel's attack on the hospital in Gaza. That I think almost that news and that issue itself in some ways overwhelmed what but the real purpose of, of uh, this convention was and certainly the summit between those two leaders. Although you could argue maybe that's not the worst thing diplomatically. I think that, you know, the relationship between China and the U.S. was so bad going into this. I mean, our militaries haven't even been talking in the last few years. And, you know, I think Biden went in with very clear goals. He wasn't going to make best friends with Xi, right? He was going to try to reestablish those relationships, make sure that when something goes wrong, that they can, you know, pick up the phone. Um, you know, and and it was funny, though, I say they're, they're not best friends, but he I think he said they met for 68 hours at one point when they were both vice presidents or over, you they know, spent over a lot series. of time together. Yeah. So they do know each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that obviously, in general, what is going on in Israel and Gaza is 
the sort of biggest news right now. Um, and that is a huge part of this. And to your point, I mean, we heard him, I think, very forcefully sort of restate his support for Israel this week. Um, but and and allude to this idea that, I mean, he kind of hinted that he thinks they're making progress on the hostages, and he definitely backed up Israeli defense and yeah. intelligence over this question over whether there is Hamas operating out of this hospital. And kind of a split-screen moment with Biden's comments and then the protests we see on the Bay Bridge on something that you've been looking into, which is how local congressional delegation right. here in the Bay Area is responding to this. And it's an issue in which you do see daylight between our congressional delegation, all kind of all Democrats in this region daylight between them and the kind of activist wing of the Democratic Party. And even their staff in some cases. Yeah. You so talked to Ro Khanna this week. I did. So I, um, I'll just tease, I have an episode dropping tomorrow on our uh, podcast, The Bay, here at KQED. Um, so I looked pretty deeply at where all, roughly 10 members of the Bay Area delegation, you can, you know, grab some and, and take some out, depending on where you sort of put that. But nine out of 10 of them, are not calling for a ceasefire, which is exactly what the protesters on the Bay Bridge were asking for. Barbara Lee is the only one who has uh, called for that. And yeah, I um, had a phone call with Ro Khanna, who had a staff member depart pretty publicly over his refusal to call for a ceasefire. Um, and, you know, Khanna was very blunt about the fact that he just doesn't feel like that that is the right diplomatic move right now. But he also was very, um, you know, sort of strong on his feeling that it, there's no justification, you know, that killing one Hamas fighter cannot justify killing 500 civilians. Um, and he had very kind words, actually, for his former staff, staffer. He said it was a very civil conversation. It sounds like they both left it respecting each other. This uh, young man just didn't feel like he could work for Khanna over this issue. Well, and I think that these protesters uh, and world leaders, too, who have been talking about this, the UN for that matter, uh, they're making their point. They're being heard. I mean, there's no question that the president and Secretary of State Blinken, they're pivoting. They're, they're recalibrating their position on this. They're talking more about Palestinians and a two-state solution right. that must happen, the fact that Israel cannot occupy Gaza after this is all over. Israel has yet to come up with the solid evidence that there was, in fact, a military base yeah. under that uh, you know, hospital. So, you know, I think, and you know, to your point about the press conference guy with Xi and Biden, I mean, there were really more questions about Israel and Hamas than there were about uh, the talks that had just happened with the two leaders. And I think in some ways for, you know, if you're the White House, if you're the presidential campaign, that's not such a bad that's thing. That's what I'm saying, yeah. You know, and I, and I think, too, they're probably just grateful there were no huge gaffes. Right. <laughs> you know, you, and it, it's funny because you, when, you, when you watch the president, it, 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 you know, you're, wait, you're just waiting. He doesn't have that command that you would hope a president would have. You know, he didn't make any mistakes, but, yeah. you know, you kind of you kind of waiting Which for something. Which is funny because I think we all blame that on Joe Biden's age. But let's face it, like, that's been Joe Biden. Joe Biden, Vintage Joe Biden for a long time, <laughs> yeah. But I agree. I think that in some ways, in, in these diplomatic, very tense talks, like no news is good news in a weird way. Like no, you know, nothing upsetting the apple cart, well, so to speak. And, and also, you know, the kind of news cycles we have now, the the two big breakthroughs on fentanyl and re, reconstituting the military communication between the two right, countries we need that came out fentanyl. like a day before. You know, yeah. so it's all kind of like old by the time the press conference happened. For sure, but I do think, I mean, the fentanyl thing, I think, is worth mentioning given where we're sitting. That that is a huge issue for the U.S. And I think that, you know, it's not going to solve it. But but China has a lot of power here to disrupt the flow of these precursor chemicals. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, any opening in that is something that is good from a public health perspective and potentially is going to be good for politically for, for Biden. OK, 
before before we wrap this show, let's talk about your exciting weekend oh, ahead, man. guy. Headed <laughs> Heading up to, to SACTO. Democratic convention, uh, the organizing and endorsing convention of the state Democratic Party. So these are all the, you know, the party faithful, the delegates from all corners yeah, of California descending in Sacramento. <laughs> I kind of so the big highlight, I think, will be hearing from the Democratic Senate candidates who are Which expected is to address delegates now that there's not, uh, you know, an imminent government shutdown. This feels like Barbara Lee's moment. This, Or to put it another way, this kind of feels like Barbara Lee's last stand, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the issue environment that exists with what's happening in Gaza. She is, is this kind of seems tailor-made for really her career and kind of the moral authority that she's held on, on foreign policy issues dating back to her historic vote being the only uh, member of Congress to vote against the authorization of force um, for Afghanistan. It kind of feels like, you know, she needs to draw the contrast, certainly with Adam Schiff, also with Katie Porter to some extent, and really make herself the candidate for, you know, the people that are in the streets protesting right now, you know, pushing for a ceasefire, which, as you said, she's been the only member of Congress here in the Bay Area. But she hasn't been out there. But she hasn't been out there. And, and, you know, even, you know, the super PAC that's supporting her, they put out a million dollar ad buy. I think they're feeling that pressure right now of like we need to you know really up her in the polls before it gets too late and even that at it relied a lot on her really incredible life story but it didn't draw that really sharp contrast mm-hmm. that i think she needs to be drawn yeah. at this moment you know i think the most important thing that any of the senate candidates could get would be an endorsement from the party but that seems completely out of reach you need a 60 percent vote uh so barbara lee is not going to get that even though this you know this party is to the left even of the you know the, the the base of the democratic party in a lot of ways in california we've said before they didn't endorse diane feinstein uh you know six years ago or Five years ago, when he was, she was running against uh, Kevin DeLeon. Um, but what else is happening, guy? Because there, there, you know, there will be an endorsement, but there's also some talk about Rusty Hicks, the party chair, and what's going to happen with him. He may run for the state assembly. Right, he's now moved up to the North Coast, so he's in this uh, second assembly district that Jim Wood, who is you know held for a number of years, says he's not going to be running again in 2024. So it's created a lot of speculation. Well, maybe Rusty Hicks is going to leave the party chair and run for this assembly seat. There's going to be a lot of, you know, endorsement fights, I think, happening in districts, even here in the Bay Area, state Senate districts in which we have multiple Democrats running. Again, this endorsement thing, it basically there's a pre-convention process that happens if you get within a certain threshold that then goes to the convention. So you're going to see some districts where literally the, the party um, endorsement is at stake this weekend. And I think it means a lot in a thing in an assembly race or in a senate race especially with the timeline that we're talking about here before the march primary Mm -hmm. voters just aren't going to have a lot of information to work with voting starts at the beginning of february we are you know literally getting within months of that and so for in a lot of these races that democratic party endorsement means a lot and that's why it's going to be uh you know a lot of fighting happening on the floor in sacramento this weekend i'm interested to hear afterward like how much some of these looming ballot measure fights could also play here. I know I've already talked to some consultants who are working against big oil to defend uh, the setbacks that the legislature passed, you know, requiring oil and gas operations to be a certain distance from schools and homes and things like that. There's this huge fight looming over this business roundtable measure we've talked about before that would essentially cut off local governments and the state government at the knees around tax increases. Or even an issue like rent control that's divided the Democratic Party in each of the last, you know, few times it's been on the state ballot. Uh, Again, as Scott alluded to, this base of delegates is 
to the left of the electorate, the Democratic electorate. And so you have seen the party support these efforts for rent control in the past, even when leading Democrats in the state like the governor. But that one's have more complicated anyway because of who's sponsoring it, the AIDS Healthcare and then Foundation. It's lost twice already. I think there, that there's yeah. a big takeout today in the LA Times looking at the that AIDS organization yeah. and Michael Weinstein who leads it and the sort of horrific conditions at some of their low income housing and the evictions that yeah. they've undertaken. So that one's like that, that there's a lot going on with that yeah, one. Well, and coming back to the Middle East, too. I mean, Palestine, Hamas, Israel. I mean, I'm imagining that's going to be a be big protests, topic, yeah. protests and, you know, topic of conversation. You know, depending on what Rusty Hicks does, there could also be a fight for party chair. We've seen that be pretty mm-hmm. heated in the past between him and Kimberly Ellis a few years ago. Any sense of, you know, that? I mean, let's just face it. Like, we care about that. Maybe five other people. Yeah, you know, right. it's, not, it's not a big. The but, timing would be would be interesting, though, right, to, to make this move for the assembly now and kind as of we leave, as we head right into this uh, election in 2024, when really like the organizing of the party does need to be on point, especially in these kind of swing districts where you need that kind of uh, yeah. on- grassroots infrastructure. infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, you wonder if people we- might not just want him to stay there. Okay, less than a minute left, guys. But I- we got to mention the fact that Kevin McCarthy got accused of... <laughs> Uh, kidney punch. <laughs> kidney punching another <laughs> and member. And NPR reporter was we there, witnessed the, it. We had the Draymond headlock. We had the Kevin McCarthy <laughs> elbow. People need to. My he, kids he are wrestling. Though. He didn't get suspended, unlike uh, Draymond. It feels like things are going a little off the rails in Congress, y'all. Yeah, absolutely. And there was kind of also a confrontation in the Senate between two Republican senators. You know this. And a and a Republican senator threatening a union boss and yeah, them was, saying they're going to fight. I mean, yeah. Back Calm to down. the top Calm. of the show. Breath. Yeah, everybody, deep breath. It's politics, not not <laughs> MMA. Um, all right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. You know, McCarthy. There's a thought he may not run again, so we'll have to see if got a right wing yeah. challenger. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guy. Thanks, Thanks for coming pleasure. in. Have, have fun a good time Sacramento. this weekend. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Jim Bennett. Our producers, Guy Marzarati and Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. We will have a show on Thanksgiving, so hope to see you then. If not, have a great week. Bye-bye. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.